Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 192. Hollywood is great. I also think it's stupid and small-minded and short-sighted. David Fincher. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my Indie Film Hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by taylorsound.com. One of the most complicated problems I've had in my professional career is sound, and sound mixing, sound design is generally always very expensive. But Taylor Sound has come onto the scene and has done something pretty incredible. Like so many other things you have in the world today, now you can get your sound design online. They're offering flat promotional rates for commercials, music videos, short films, and any other video content that's short form. They're very affordable, and because you are an Indie Film Hustle Tribe member, we'll get 15% off your order. Just type in the word hustle in the post your brief section. That's T-A-I-L-O-R sound.com. Now, how many of you guys listening want to learn how to sell your movie? I think everybody and every filmmaker wants to know that little secret nugget, and there really is no other bigger place to sell an independent film than AFM, which is the American film market. They've been around for decades, and they are the industry standard, especially on the Western Hemisphere. Now, you guys know that I've self-distributed This Is Meg um, through Distribber, but I have used a traditional distributor for my international sales. So This Is Meg has been to Cannes, and now uh, next week is actually going to AFM. So I've been seeing the behind the scenes of how a movie is really sold in the international marketplace. And there's one thing to see it from the outside, but when you're seeing it from the inside with a film, it's very, very educational. And today's guest gives you the ultimate inside on how movies are bought and sold at AFM. Today's guest is Jonathan Wolf. He is the managing partner of AFM, has been there since 1998. He is, as they say, the man at AFM. Uh, he runs the whole show, puts the whole thing together. And I really dug in and asked him every question I ever wanted to know about how to sell a film at AFM. We talk about pre-sales. We talk about uh, actors, what their values are, how to actually go to AFM, what to do, how to walk around, what kind of meetings you should be taking, all these kind of things and how it just works as a general statement. And it is a big 
just like another subculture, it's a whole other world, you know, AFM and that one hotel in Santa Monica has its own world, its own rules of how things are done. And they've been done this way for decades. Now, the landscape is changing without a doubt, but there is still very much a place where you, you know, if you're going to go after international sales uh, and domestic sales for that matter, uh, this is the place to be. And I was flabbergasted to find out that in those uh, days, I think it's five or six days, that AFM is running in November, over a billion dollars of business is done. It's a pretty substantial uh, substantial place to be if you're a filmmaker. Now, if you don't have a movie, it's always good to just go get a pass and walk the halls to see what, what people are doing, how they're selling it, what you need to do. And this year, I'm planning to be there, uh, and I'm going to be there hopefully for the first time as uh, as a participant, not just someone hanging out, uh, as uh, as we talk about in the show, uh, in the in the episode today, uh, about the guys who just hang out in the lobby, but someone with an actual pass who's going to be able to walk around and talk and and so on. So, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Wolf from AFM. I'd like to welcome to the show Jonathan Wolf, uh, the managing director of AFM. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jonathan. Happy to be here. So for everyone listening, can you just do a blanket answer of what is AFM? The American film market is essentially a trade show for independent film where um, licenses to film and the financing of film takes place. Global export takes place. It's where uh, buyers and acquisition executives from maybe 80 countries come and meet with hundreds and hundreds of distributors and production companies to look for the films they want to buy that are finished, the films that they want to buy that are in development and in production. And ultimately, it's where film gets greenlit and where film travels all over the world. AFM is really the, the door that films pass through to reach the globe. That are not studio-based. This is all for independent producers, mostly. Yes. Yeah, so we can get into a little bit later about what's independent and what's studio and how all that works. All right, cool. Now, what are the basic goals of attendees to AFM from like the different sides of the business? Well, there's three constituents that come to the market. Um, uh, there are the production distribution companies who are actively licensing film around the world, whether they're larger companies like I Am Global and Lionsgate and Sierra Affinity, um, down to very small ones that are coming from whether it's Hong Kong or Argentina or France. And they all have productions that they're looking to uh, license to acquisition executives all over the world. And we refer to those companies as, as sales companies or distributors. Then the second group are territorial buyers. Again, coming from about 80 countries, buying the Blu-ray rights for France, buying the transactional VOD rights for, uh, for uh, Japan, buying the theatrical rights for the UK. And we have about 16 or 1,700 buyers that come from all over the world. And then the third group you have is the production community. The middle of the bell curve of that are producers, then writers, film commissioners, post-production facilities, lawyers, bankers, agents, really all of those who are involved in the process of, of bringing films forward. And those are the three groups, and they each have a different mission. Mm -hmm. The the sales companies um, want to get the packages that they've put together and the films that they've completed licensed and sold around the world. The territorial buyers are looking for the films that, that work best in, in their region and their, the media that they're buying for. 
And the production community, I suppose you could say most are looking either to network or sell something. Mm -hmm. Producers and writers have scripts. Film commissions are trying to encourage productions in their, their region. Uh, production facilities are trying to get business in. And since so many films are greenlit at the AFM, it becomes a key destination for those who provide production services where they can connect with people who are about to about to go forward on a film. They have an opportunity to uh, to grab some business. So there, it's basically a melting pot of the world's filmmaking community. Yeah, and a filmmaking community on the business side. The AFM right. is not about the craft. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't advise actors to be there. The only reason a director should be there is that if they're actually also the writer or also the producer or involved in, in the pitch, it's not a place for cinematographers. It, it's about a place for those who contribute to the process of greenlighting a film. Now, I know, you, and uh, I've heard you speak before about Cannes and how you guys kind of complement each other. Can you talk a little bit about um, the differences and how you guys complement each other at the Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival? Sure. There, there are three major film markets around the world, and just looking at it chronologically from today, there's the American film market in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. The European film market that is held in February in Berlin, concurrently with the Berlin Film Festival, the Berlin Alley. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Cannes Film Market, or Marché du Film, which is held concurrently with Cannes, uh, the Cannes Festival. The AFM and, and the Cannes market are about the same size. They have the same buyers and the same uh, distributors and sales companies there. There's probably a 90 to 95 percent overlap. The production community there may skew a little bit more uh, European just because of proximity. The production community here may skew a little bit more American. Mm -hmm. uh, but the business and the activities of the two are almost identical. Um, uh, they have a festival, but the festival runs separate from the market, just happens to take place at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the activities are the same. The size of the audience is about the same. The European film market is probably about 75 or 80 percent the size of each of those two, and they probably get about 70 or 80 percent of the participants. It's, it's sort of a mid-semester stop between these two events, one held in Hollywood, um, or in Hollywood's backyard, I should say, mm -hmm. Santa Monica. And so there's a tremendous value for those traveling all over the world um, um, to not only come to the AFM, but have their meetings with studios and others in, in Mecca, if you will. Mm -hmm. right. you, have, you have the Marche de Film, which is held with the grandest of all festivals in a, in a beautiful environment in Cannes. And so, yes, we're not competitors. Um, we communicate frequently. Uh, they run a website called Sonando. Um, uh, we have a, a feed of our database that goes straight into Sonando. So when someone registers for the AFM within 24 hours, they're flagged and Sonando is attending AFM. So we work, you know, uh, in a very complimentary way. Fantastic. Now, how can uh, an independent, independent producer with a film get uh, the most out of AFM when they attend? Um, well, uh, I want to be sure I'm, I'm clear. There's there's producers with a film that are finished, and there's yes. producers with a film that are in a, in a project state. So both so you, both 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 tra both tracks. Um, for producers, let's let's do it chronologically. Where producers with a project, and let's let's start by saying that's a finished screenplay. What you don't find in the independent world are are production companies that are willing to pay for development costs. A producer who walks in and says, um, I just signed the rights to this guy's uh, life and it's going to be great and I'm looking for development money for people to help go, let's go hire a writer. They're not going to get much traction unless this is just, you know, a, a superstar uh, that they happen to sign. 
um, for the most part, scripts are written on spec when it comes to independent film. So a producer coming into the AFM needs to have a finished screenplay or screenplays. Hopefully mm -hmm. they've got multiple projects that they're working on. And their goal really is to connect with the distributor, the sales company, we use those words somewhat interchangeably, um, uh, who is adept at licensing those films, packaging those films, assisting them in finding the right uh, production subsidies and, um, and soft money, if you will, the incentives to help bring that film forward. And so when, when a producer is coming to the FM, they're looking for the right match. We've got about 400 companies with offices. Uh, these companies come from 30, 35 countries. Um, not every company is right for every film. Right. And so the producer is looking for who handles this kind of genre, who handles this kind of budget, um, um, are they interested in projects that they haven't produced themselves? Will they get involved in the packaging? You know, you've got decision makers from 400 companies under one roof. It's, it's a unique opportunity, but it's an opportunity for someone who's prepared. Mm -hmm. And that means doing the homework well in advance. Someone who just shows up on opening day and thinks I'm going to go door to door and everybody's going to talk to me is going to walk home very unhappy. Mm -hmm. uh, FM is about appointments and schedules are being booked now as we speak. Uh, we're, we're two weeks out from the show. Um, producers need to do the research, use IMDb Pro, use our website, thefilmcatalog.com, uh, mm. which you can get to from the FM's website, where you can see the films that each company uh, handles and get a sense of who's right. Start to contact those companies, set up meetings. You're looking for a 10-minute meeting. You're looking for a pitch. The goal of the producer in that first meeting is to get the listener to read the script. Mm. That's all. A lot of times producers will come in and say, I'm trying to close a deal. They haven't read the script yet. They don't have the understanding of the sales process. Each step is just to get to the next step. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as, and how about if you have an actual finished project? If you have a finished film, first, congrats to anybody that does. <laughs> All uh, right. The, the process is, is similar. Uh, what's different is you're not trying to get someone to read a script. You want them to see the film. Mm -hmm. Now, our advice always is if we have a finished film, Set up acquisition screenings, L.A., New York, London, um, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, 3 in the afternoon, not in the evening. They're not cast and crew. People don't go to acquire films and their time off. These are business events. Set up acquisition screenings. Get that film to be seen in a dark theater, not on a, you know, in 2K or 4K, not on a Blu-ray that's, uh, that's being watched on a small screen while the kids are screaming or the phone is ringing or things like that. You really want to present the film the right way. If you think it has any hope of seeing a theater in terms of its release, that's the manner that you want to show it. It's no different than a car show where they've got the lighting just right on the car and somebody's waxing it or dusting it every hour. You need to make sure that, that you're unveiling your, your hard work in the best way. And a lot of times you reject uh, the company that says, well, we only take uh, Blu-ray submissions. Uh, uh, most of those companies never acquire those anyways. They just want to see what's up out and out there in the marketplace and maybe a, a, a peek at what their competitors may, may choose to do. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have, if you haven't set that up, your goal at the AFM is to get the film seen. The best way to do that is, I believe, is to select four or five or six scenes from the film mm -hmm. um, that are great examples of the production quality, the work of the director, the actor's skills. Put them together on a secure website, whether it's Vimeo or something else. The whole thing is three, four, five minutes. And send links to it and say, here are selected scenes. 
take a look. We think it's perfectly positioned for your company. Again, the pitch is going to change. Whatever the company is, the pitch is targeted uniquely at that company. And take a look at this. We'd like to meet with you at the FM. We're confident we're going to uh, you know, close the deal at the FM or right afterwards. The key thing here, though, is the producer is not supposed to cut a consumer trailer. The com- producer is not showing the, the distributor how the distributor should market the film. The, distribu- the producer is selecting the best scenes uh, to show the quality of the film to get the buyer to go see it. B2B marketing and B2C marketing are very, very different. And producers um, frequently miss what that is. Um, even when these sales companies um, um, cut what they call product reels, not trailers, mm-hmm. they cut product reels in a way to entice the territorial buyer. It again, it isn't cut like a 60 second or 90 second uh, trailer for a consumer. In this case, you're not even trying to do that. You're trying to show here are four or five, six scenes. The goal again is to get the viewer to invest 90 minutes to watch the film to see if it's a good acquisition um, for them. So, so you suggest no trailers. How about a poster? No. I mean, look, let, let me back up for a minute. Um, too many producers fall victim of a disease. And that disease is believing in the theory of transferable expertise. I am an expert in one thing, therefore I'm an expert in all things. Doctors and lawyers, you know, guilty of that all the time. Mm-hmm. Producers, I'm an expert on my film. So I know which screens in the east side of New York it should play in. Mm-hmm. I know the best costumes for the actors. I know how to cut the trailer. I'll help oversee the artwork. And that tends to be a disaster. The best producers, the absolute best, are the ones that bring all the experts around them and create teams for each film of the best of, of the best. The producer that says, <clears throat> I know how to sell my film, is a producer that usually fails. And so, no, it is an artwork. Um, it's, it's, if the film is done, it's simply, here's the film, mm-hmm. take a look at the film. The professional is not going to be driven by the artwork. You know, thank you, Mr. Producer for spending all this, or Ms. Producer, spending all, all the time to create art that you think I might use to market that to the consumer to motivate me. Just tell me the genre. Just tell me who's in it. Let me get a sense of the storyline and I'll decide if I want to watch the film. So then when, when you're at AFM, I see all these posters everywhere. Who are those posters aimed at and those banners aimed at? The posters are aimed at the territorial buyers. These are distributors who have uh. created art. They've created art for the packages or the finished films that they have. Mm-hmm. To get the, the, the buyer from Japan who's looking who's running a Blue, Blu-ray distribution, um, the theatrical buyer from France, um, each of those buyers um, are looking – are looking for film for their territory. And so this is what you see at the AFM is B2B marketing, mm-hmm. not, not B2C. Now, some of it will carry over, sure. but it's specifically designed. You'll see a lot of posters at the AFM with a little fine print at the bottom, credits not contractual. Why? Because at the AFM, they're creating art as a one-off that's only going to hang in that room and then off it goes that's designed to get the B2B buyer into that suite. It may not be the contractual credits that ultimately have to be on the poster. It's the art and the message and the cast. You know, you're very rarely, unfortunately, you're going to see the writer listed on any of these posters. Why? Because the buyer's not looking for a writer. But contractually, it's going to, they're going to have to be there on the consumer art. 
So these are B2B, B2B posters, B2B art. Now, I've always – I don't know if you can answer this question, but I've always wondered, when you say like the theatrical buyer for France, who puts that person in, in that position or or the, the Blu-ray comp? Like are there just individual companies or like – so there's multiple theatrical for France, like when you sell a country. Like I just yeah, sold I just sold my movie um, and my movie is going to be at AFM this year as well that I right. directed. And we just sold um, uh, South Africa. For for all ter- you know all media and we sold China as well. Um, who 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 puts these people in power? Are there multiple versions, or is there well, just really just one person? Well, first of all, nobody puts them in power. There's much Bengali out there. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um, you know, talking for a moment about the difference between independent distributors and the majors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the major studios, seven major studios, they have a web of distribution around the world. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if Fox makes a film. They just send the elements and the art to their offices in Japan, their offices in France, and their web of distribution pushes that film out into literally every village, hamlet, and borough. Mm-hmm. That's what makes them a major. They have a web of distribution. Independents don't. There's some independents who have distribution in their home country, um, but, but beyond that, they don't. So they look for local distributors local distributors who are in the business of distributing film, and it's not the seven major studios. Uh, and there are distributors in every country. I mentioned, uh, let's say, in, in France, uh, entertainment film, uh, sorry, UK, entertainment film distributors, a large local distributor. In, in uh, Australia, Roadshow, uh, mm-hmm. you can go on and on. There are thousands, there's probably about 3,500 if you include all the broadcasters, of, of distributors, VOD platforms, Blu-ray distributors, theatrical distributors um, uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. These are the territorial buyers who are coming in to buy the film. So when you see a film distributed uh, um, you know, in the, the U.S. by a studio or by a small independent, there are those same independents all over the world. They just don't exist in the U.S. They exist everywhere. Who's distributing all the French language films? It isn't the seven studios. Mm-hmm. It's local French distributors who's distributing Italian film and British film and and uh, and and Chinese films. And so all of those distributors um, are looking to acquire imported product, not just local product. And so it's it's a mix. And so nobody anoints them. They have these are entrepreneurs. Some of them are publicly held companies in their in their country. And they're coming to acquire um, um, all of the rights uh, from from transactional VOD all the way up to the theatrical rights. So it's 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 similar. Like if I was going to sell a movie to Disney, uh, Disney would own. Disney is one of many distributors in the United States you could buy from, but they would own the rights for the U.S. If that was a deal that we made, and similar Correct. to every other country. Key thing is is you know film is not like selling um, um, televisions. When you sell televisions as a manufacturer, you can sell it to competitors, retailers across the street from each other. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. When you license film, you're always licensed exclusively by media and mm-hmm. by territory. Mm-hmm. And so if a buyer comes in and says, I'm buying the theatrical and Blu-ray rights for France, that distributor, that buyer, is the only person that's going to have that film in that country. Um, and so... Um, um, this causes this causes a lot of negotiation, of course, mm-hmm. because if the, if films are highly sought after, there will be multiple buyers coming in uh, making offers, and it takes quite quite a while. It's one of the reasons the FM is seven days long. Mm-hmm. Trade shows, most industries are two and a half to three. Right. The FM is as busy on day seven as we are on day one. 
But so anyways, nobody anoints them. These are entrepreneurs around the world. And they, the independents are dependent on local distributors throughout the world. Because if they all went away, the studios wouldn't be buying the films. Right, exactly. Now, can you talk a little bit about pre-sales? And, and also, do they matter as much as they did in yesteryear? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, there's been an evolution. Just for those who are not familiar with it, pre-selling is bringing a package um, that's got a finished script, cast attached, a director, a budget, a start date, um, and and selling the film to territorial buyers, and hopefully selling enough of the of the world, whatever your needs happen to be, that you're able to use those contracts, those promises to pay to borrow against them at, at a bank and help the production financing. Um, pre-selling, and I'll just come back to your question in a second, pre-selling does something else, uh, which a lot of producers miss. And that is, is it gives them marketplace pre-acceptance. Uh, I'll use an example. Jimmy Choo makes shoes, mm-hmm. makes 10 or 15 shoes, and he goes to whatever the, the marketer or event that they have for the shoe industry, and he puts out all the shoes, and all the retailers come by, and they buy different shoes, and there's three or four shoes left that nobody bought. He may be really unhappy. Put a, put a lot of time and effort into it, thought it was the best shoe in the world, goes in a shelf and never gets seen again. It's not going to manufacture the shoe that nobody wanted. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the garment industry, they get to, to make samples. They pre-sell the samples, they see what's going to be bought, and they don't make the rest. Well, when you come to film, we've sometimes heard this phrase, a film that should have never been made. <laughs> it's a statement, but we've all heard it before. Mm-hmm. In almost all cases, that film did not go to a market and attempt to be pre-sold. Um, when you go to a market and you say, here's the cast, here's the script, here's the budget, here's what we're doing, and you have a good portion of the world coming in, the different buyers, all the different buyers and what their needs are, and their offers, and it looks like it's working terrific. But then you send seven days at the American film market, and you have dozens and dozens of meetings with buyers all over the world. At the end of the day, you got one or two offers and sort of a shrug of the shoulders. In the shoe world, you put the shoe on the shelf. In the film business, you got to put the script on the shelf and walk away. Mm-hmm. And there are companies that do. And this is very, very difficult for the creative producer who's really not the business person, but is in, you know just totally invested in in the craft and that and that that film. Um, it's hard for them to walk away. So um, if a producer even has all of the financing, my advice is. That's terrific. Connect with the sales company before you make the film. First of all, they may give you some marketplace advice. What actors work better than others? They're not telling you to take it. It's your film, your money. But they're going to give you some marketplace advice. Then go to a market. Attempt to pre-sell the film. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't pre-sell, you can still go make the film. But you've been truly warned. You've been truly warned about what what might work and and what might not. So pre-selling works um, and pre-selling is still very active, but it's active at budget levels that start to get above five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Pre-selling on budgets below that, it tends to be too small. The buyers don't need to guarantee a distribution pipeline. Uh, 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 sorry, films to fill the distribution pipeline mm-hmm. at at budgets of that level. Um, so they'll tend to wait. And as budgets have bifurcated over the last ten years, meaning they're getting bigger or smaller. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, you could have made a $5 million horror film and made money on it. Mm-hmm. Today, it, it better be about a million two or less. Mm-hmm. 
The same thing, um, budgets for theatricals are getting much larger. Look, there's always exceptions. We saw one the last week or two, but um, budgets are getting bigger or smaller. The bigger the budgets, they're much more dependent on the presale. Mm-hmm. Once you get below about a half a million dollars, much less because the, the producers tend to find the equity and the incentives and the deferrals they need um, to make the film without pre-selling. And so, no, I wouldn't go try and pre-sell a $300,000 film. And mm-hmm. by the way, there is a business for anybody listening that thinks with a question mark, what do you mean? three hundred? There's lots of people that are making $300,000 films, selling them for six, seven, and eight when all the deals are in and have a terrific business. Um, there are niche markets for all kinds of films, um, you know, from, um, most notably, I suppose in the U S, um, um, faith-based, mm-hmm. faith-based filmmaking, family and, that, to, and families yep, as well. I saw in that, it. in that budget range. Um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, interesting enough, it's still, uh, doing very well in Blu-ray. Um, um, but so yes. Presale is one of the key components of financing film, along with equity, along with incentives, uh, along with deferrals um, um, uh, to bring a package together. Now, can you explain to the audience, and I, I preached this a lot on, on the show, what the importance is of cast, especially to an international community and an international buyer? Can you explain why it's so important and, and any suggestions to help? A filmmaker along with that that whole process yeah i'm just going to skim on the surface of this question because i'm not out there selling every day and i think sales companies can give a a, a more robust answer mm-hmm. but, but the the simple answer is the buyer is taking a risk um on the film mm-hmm. the more that the sales company can show the buyer how to sell it to the consumer you know a lot of times uh, the sales companies will say, hey, we cut four trailers. We want you to see all four. Look at which ones might work for your audience. We had 25 comps on the poster. We took five to finish. We're only using one in the U.S., but we want to show you the other four because they may work better for your audience. Well, cast is another element uh, where the, the territorial buyer can say, ah, I, I have something to put on my artwork. I have a hook. Cast, you know, when, when you... When Tom Cruise is paid $30 million for a film, um, he's not 30 times better as an actor than someone's paid a million dollars or 300 times better than someone's paid a hundred thousand dollars. And when you go above a certain level of payment for an actor, you are buying their marketability and you're pre-buying a marketing campaign. And so the, the question simply is, is does that person bring marketability and saleability um, uh, to the film. And, and that's, that's why for, you know, all the way back to the beginning of film, why some cast are paid more than others because they'll resonate with the audience because the putting, again, I'll keep using Tom Cruise for an example, you're guaranteed millions and millions of dollars of publicity. And you're also guaranteed a built in audience that will at least look at the trailer and pay attention. And it tells the audience, well, this film's going to have certain production values. If this actor chose to do the film, Mm -hmm. it must be noteworthy enough that I should take a look at it too. If they only had actors I've never heard of, maybe all the good actors passed on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's almost like, like giving it a, uh, a seal of approval that, uh, or reinforcement. Um, that the film is worthwhile. So it really has to do with marketing from just different angles. And it depends on 
what you know what the genre of the film is and and, and who the cast is. It's a, which pieces what I've just mentioned make you know fit. fit. Right now, would you suggest that filmmakers before they cast, before they they sign the dotted line with the cast, go to distributors and find out what they think that that, that cast might be worth or that actor might be worth? Because I did a specific uh, group of films with a, an unnamed actor. I won't say his name, but he had diluted himself so much that whatever value he did have once was not. People were like, "I got five other movies with him in it. I, I really can't buy it," and the poor filmmaker was stuck you know, holding the bag. So do you suggest that they should talk to distributors prior to, uh, to signing those deals? Yeah. And this comes back to the comment about pre-selling gets you marketplace pre-acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, this is called the film business, not the film endowment, <laughs> it's not a film arts endowment, right? This is business. And the goal of every producer is to get an audience. Um, um, it's, we're not painting paintings that, we do out in a park and then we show to our family and it hangs in someone's bedroom. You know, that's a swell thing for art artists who want to do films for themselves. You know, I, I tell producers a lot, if a director comes to you and says he just written a great script, he wants to direct and you ask him who's the film for. If the director tells you a specific audience, young women, middle-aged men, whatever it is, you say, great. If the director says, well, the film is for me. The producer should just get up and run out of the room <laughs> because, because, this is a film business and those working on it constantly have to face the audience um, and everything they do, um, you know, all across the board, even, even when it comes to, when you talk about casting, mm-hmm. when it comes to, to costumes, when it comes to language, is this for girls 13 to 17, which means we need a PG on it in the U S and then some similar in other countries. So the shots that we have, the, 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 the costumes that we do, the language that we use has to be at a certain level, or are we going somewhere else? The, the eye has to always be on the audience. Um, and, and so where, wherever that that's going to fit. I mean, you mentioned actor, I'll mention, I'll mention one Nicholas Cage. Yes. yes. There, there was a time, there was a time where everybody I knew in distribution had a Nicolas Cage film. Right. Everybody had one. Right. And, and he became, for a period of time, um, an independent film, very diluted. Mm-hmm. He was working nonstop. And there were five films one year at the AFM that Nicolas Cage, either in pre-production, in production, in post, finished. Um, and so, yeah, anybody can can become diluted. But that's that's the actor's brand. And mm-hmm. every actor manages their brand in, in – uh, in a certain way. And the producer has to understand when they're casting that they're not just getting someone who is an actor. They're buying a brand, you know, mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage, Tom Cruise, they're buying a brand, whether it's a very small brand mm-hmm. or a large brand, they're still buying a brand. And what's that brand bring to them both, both positive and negative. Now, can you discuss a little bit about where we are today in the DVD, Blu-ray and uh, TVOD and SVOD markets, uh, as opposed to yesteryear as well? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I probably don't have a lot new to add to that. We mm. see the consumers, uh, you know, more more willing to or pref- prefers rather to just get the delivery online. I mean, it's can you imagine that they're going to look back decades from now and say to watch an hour and a half of television? People used to get in their car, <laughs> drive in the rain, go around the block looking for a parking space, 
go into a shop, you know, go through the whole process, waiting in line, blah, blah, blah. And then if they didn't bring it back in two days, they started getting penalties like a like a library. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's barbaric. It's a barbaric. I, I mean, talk about a transitory technology of VHS from the <laughs> mid 80s till, sure. till when it finally uh, uh, went away and, and Blu-ray as, as well. I mean, it's it's goofy yeah. um, that, that, that it was actually there. And truly Hollywood, Hollywood, uh, um, um, video stores along with Blockbuster, they, they were bubbles. They wrote a great bubble and a lot of people made a lot of dough. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's technology now is is you know uh, moving that aside. There will always be a packaged goods buyer. The same way people are still buying uh, CDs, um, they're still buying uh, vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, though most of the listening is done through different uh, digital uh, uh, platforms. Uh, and delivery systems. It's it's the same way when it comes to to film in the home. Um, it's it's just moving in that direction. Um, and you know who ends up being the big players? We'll see. We I mean, we just saw this week the announcement uh, of, of a, uh, um, not movies everywhere. What is it? Um, uh, movies in time. Yeah. Uh, and and so everything's going in that direction where eventually you're going to, if you want the film digitally available for you, you're going to pay a specific, a certain fee and it may be a higher fee when the film was released versus a lower fee, you know, later in the film's life. And once you pay that fee, you have it forever. But what this has done and what this subscription business has done, it has destroyed the value in film in the ancillary markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me explain what I mean. 10 years ago, selling a film at the AFM to a, let's say an Italian buyer, that Italian buyer could forecast what the value of that film was worth in second cycle syndication in Italy on television Mm -hmm. in years five to 10 of the film's life. They would know what that value was. And so they could determine when buying that film, what the life of that film would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And you would look at, at networks like TNT and TBS Mm -hmm. and FX and most of what you saw at night were, were reruns of, of action adventure films and whatever their, their flavor was. Um, and you'd see it all the time. When, when subscription models moved up, led obviously by Netflix, it, it slowly but swiftly destroyed the value of all of that syndication, not just in the U.S., but globally. Mm-hmm. Now when buyers buy a film, they're looking at the revenue stream about three years out, not 25 years out. Because once a film is, a, if you have a Netflix subscription, the film is on Netflix, you're never going to watch it on TBS. What for? Why should I watch it with the commercials at a specific appointed time? I can download it anytime I want for free. And edit it, and edit it down for content as well. Absolutely. And so one of the reasons that we've seen the huge growth in event television and series and all the specialized series and over 400 narrative series in the U.S., is because these networks had no choice. The model that they started with of showing event film right off of the theaters, TBS, a film 18 months out of the theater going to be on TBS, gone. Yeah, they have a few there. You can still see Die Hard, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. But most of that stuff is gone. They have no interest in anything beyond a very, very narrow band that happens to fit uh, what they need. And so suddenly they, their source of content uh, uh, went empty and they had to create content. And so all of them started, I'm looking at American, you know, AMC, mm-hmm. that stands, 
Most people don't, don't even think about it anymore. American movie classics. <laughs> right. That's what it was. <laughs> and all it showed was classic films. You know, um, completely gone. Now we're looking at their event series. And, you, and because, why? Because all the films they would have shown, you can go find them on Netflix now. It doesn't matter. Destroyed their business. But they managed to pivot. They and did. You, you're are absolutely all- right. They did pivot. And it, it, they could have gone the way of Blockbuster, but they actually yep. pivoted in Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and uh, yep. Walking Dead now. Yep. And so, and and a lot of them are. You know, the question is, well, and this is not the really topic of our discussion today, how mm-hmm. long is this also a bubble? Is this being fed by all the consumers who are unable to unbundle their cable and satellite packages so fees are flowing to all of these networks and once that unbundling starts to get some momentum, are the fees going to drop? Are we all paying taxes for films, for TV shows that we never watch? And as we unbundle, will that will that source of financing go away? My belief is this is a bubble as well. We'll just have to see how long it lasts. Um, and so, so when you talk about the impact of the technology on film, what it's really done is it has taken a big bite out of the ancillary value. And so that the buyer has to look at what they're going to make in a short window rather than than a long window. Now, can you talk a little bit about uh, how distributors set up booths in the hotel rooms at the actual uh, at the actual AFM, and so people understand how it works when they sure. walk around? You know, for those who've been to a trade show before, you go into big convention center and their aisles and and their different uh, uh, companies, big and small whether it's a restaurant show or a furniture show or a consumer electronics show, they're all pretty similar. What, what, and the AFM is also a trade show in that way where we have what we call exhibitors with exhibition space. But what makes us different is we're not in a convention center, we're in a hotel. Uh, the AFM is held um, in Santa Monica at the Lowe's Santa Monica Beach Hotel. It's a 350-room hotel. We close the hotel for two weeks. No one sleeps in the hotel for two weeks. We move all of the beds and most of the furniture out of the hotel, and the hotel turns into an office building. And we refer to our exhibition space not as booths but as offices. And so you might have a large company like Lionsgate come and take six, seven, eight, nine rooms and create a suite of offices because they're large. You might find you know, very small companies. Uh, let's say it's, it's Troma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is coming in and taking a single office. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might Studio Canal, one of the largest uh, co- companies in France, takes a large suite. And so they're turning their, their space into offices. They do this because this is about having meetings. It's not about the territorial buyer coming by. Let me scan your badge and I'll follow up with you in the months to come about our, our next lineup. Like you might if you were selling couches and here's this year's model. Mm-hmm. Film, film is very delicate. It depreciates quickly. It has to go to market globally and simultaneously. So when films are being offered and packages are being offered, these are about closing deals at the AFM, not uh, creating sales leads. And it's one of the reasons the market is seven days long, because these are negotiations. People go into offices. They're sitting behind desks. The offices are filled with couches and desks and computers and, and, and obviously lots of screens of different sizes. Um, and it's about it's about closing deals. And so the companies who are there, the first few days that they're there, this appointment show too. This is not drop buys, but but the show starts right now in a couple of weeks. I would imagine that most of the distributors, their schedules are three quarters full the first few days. Um, those companies are looking to license the packages 
and the finished film that they're bringing to the market. And those are their key meetings the first few days. As their schedules start to lighten up, days four through seven, as they have time, they will start to have some interest, and I have to you know, caution it's some interest, in meeting with producers and starting to hear about new projects coming forward. Some are very interested in doing this. Mm-hmm. Some say they don't want to do it at all at the FM. Mm-hmm. Some will only do it when they have free time. You catch them at the right the right moment. But every company there has to find new content and new projects. And so they all have meetings. It's a matter of how much they'll, of their AFM time they'll spend on that. But their first few days and their primary focus is licensing films and projects they brought. And I, I need to add one thing to this. We estimate that in the seven days, about a billion dollars in deals will be done on independent film at the FM. But the more interesting number for me is more than half of that, over a half a billion dollars of business will be done on films that haven't started shooting yet. We use the phrase pre-sale, mm-hmm. but, but if you start to wrap your head around a half a billion dollars in business on independent film that haven't been greenlit, um, that's what happens at the AFM. You know, we hear sometimes about a producer with a film that got, went to Sundance and at three o'clock in the morning, the distributor came along and saw the film. And by, by dawn, they had a deal and mm-hmm. the champagne was popping. We see one or two of those stories every year in the trade. I can promise you there are dozens and dozens of producers that have worked with a sales company for many, many, many months and, and put a project together, got the cast committed, got the bonding company in place, found the equity, found the incentives, but they need a portion of, of, of the world to be pre-sold or they can't make the film. They don't have the green light until they've sold a portion of the film. And they walk in on pins and needles and they walk out with a green light and there's more champagne corks pop, popped after the AFM than at any festival uh, because they, they walk in with uncertainty and they walk out with a green light. A billion dollars in seven days. That's very impressive. And it's consistent. It's consistently been like, because you've been with them since 98, correct? Right. And, and, and one of the reasons, you know, people say, well, why, why even travel? Why do people go to trade shows? Why, why do they go to film markets? They can watch everything um, um, uh, on a screen. The technology is there. The fact is when the AFM started in 81, there was VHS. You could put VHS in a FedEx box and send it off. The technology's always been there in one way or another to keep people from getting on planes. The reason there are markets, a few things. First, um, markets are very inefficient, uh, film markets. People have to travel, get on planes, go for all over the world just for the privilege of buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, inefficient markets drive up prices. A distributor and a producer want the best prices possible. So they are loath to see an efficient marketplace. We have seen time and time again entrepreneurs with websites saying, we're going to set up a website for you to buy and sell your film. Mm -hmm. And the distributors have turned their back on them time and time again because the distributors and producers don't want an efficient website, don't want an efficient marketplace. Inefficiency drives up prices. But the other and more important thing is markets create an auction environment. If you send an email to a buyer that says, hey, today we're – we're now starting sales on this or that film, and here's the script, and have a read. There's no sense that I need to move in the next 24 hours or that film might be gone. Mm-hmm. When people have traveled from all over the world and they walk in the door of the Lowe's, they're learning about projects that may have only been announced in the prior two days or the prior three days or even that morning. 
um, that if you do the announcements right around the show, and you'll see a lot of these coming up in the coming week or so, um, this creates an auction environment. And this is auctions drive up prices. And this is the goal of the producer and the distributor. They want to hold back and create that feeding frenzy, um, um, if you will. And we haven't seen the advances in technology in any way uh, reduce the amount of business at the markets or reduce attendance. In fact, technology is just helping to increase the face-to-face -face value by being able to set up meetings, set up calendars, see trailers or product reels online, but know that the, the, the sales company says, you can see the trailer, but I won't entertain offers until you arrive in LA. They want to create that auction environment. And at the end of the day, it's, it's a very handshake, look you in the eye kind of business uh, at the AFM. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it is until it isn't. Everything's everything's in contracts. No, no, I, I meant, I, I, of course, in contracts, but I meant more like I need to like the relationships that you build, and and well, year after year you keep meeting the same distributors and same producers, and you start building relationships up. It's something that is is very it unique. Is that, it's that way for product lines. Um, um, you know, I back a ways ago, uh, the producers involved in. Um, uh, the Olsen twin videos were considering a different international s distributor. Mm -hmm. And I went to one distributor and said, Hey, this is, you know, I can set up a meeting. Do you guys want to chat? And the distributor said, sales company said, no. And I said, why? This is a slam dunk. It's Olsen twin videos. Distributor said, we sell theatricals. We have a certain clientele who come to us. We don't sell to the buyers who are looking for that type of film. Um, and we'd have to start a new segment of our business and it, would, it wouldn't be a good fit. The same way, you know, film companies are not like Macy's, where they have everything from expensive Armani leather jackets to $10 sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Distributors work in narrow bands, um, whether it's budget, language, genre, methods of financing. And so, so you know, it's, it, you have to identify for each buyer, each of the buyers identify the distributors and have the product um, that that they're looking for. Now, can you also explain the whole layout of AFM, meaning the lobby and then the different floors and, and what passes get you into what floor and all that kind of stuff? Cause I, I've, I've heard of that uh, before I was actually at AFM. I heard the legends of like, you need a pass to get this and the pool and, and deals are made at the, at the lobby, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually an unfortunate discussion. If you look at most trade shows and if you look even at the Cannes film market and the European film market, um, you have a badge and you walk in the door. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. Um, at the AFM, the lobby of the hotel is public space. Mm -hmm. And for a variety of reasons that have to do with security and other things, we don't have security on the front door of the hotel. If we did, we'd be like any of the other markets. You have a credential, you walk into the event. Mm -hmm. But the lobby is open, um, and therefore you need a badge to attend the market. You just don't happen to need a badge if you want to stand around in the lobby. Mm -hmm. Now, there are about 12 chairs in the lobby. Yes, I it's know. It's not a place <laughs> to go hang out. <laughs> right. um, and it's usually only those people who don't have a badge um, and are, you know, and are just hanging out. It's it's not a place most people with a credential stay. Once you start to go upstairs or elevators, you need a badge to access the uh, uh, any other part of the hotel. And this is where all of the uh, 
the sales company offices are. So yeah, there's a lobby and, you know, but, but boy, you know, if you're hanging out in the lobby, you're sort of tagged to someone hanging out in the lobby. You know, we had Adam Carolla, um, come and speak, um, when he, uh, had done his film road Heart. Mm-hmm. and he walked into the lobby through the lobby to get to the, uh, to the seminar room that we had set up. And the interviewer asked him his first question. And before he'd answered the question, he looks at the camera, looks at the interviewer and says, did you see all the douchebags in the lobby? (laughs) And he does a minute and a half riff, including things like, if Al-Qaeda bombed this place, the world supply of douchebags, it'd take 10 years to replenish. (laughs) And went on and on. Of course, we had this piped out into the lobby. We have screens in the lobby. Oh, no. And tell me afterwards, dude, he's talking about you. Um, so all I can say to the listeners is if you're coming to the AFM, come to the AFM with a credential and you're a player. Uh, if you're hanging out in the lobby and, you know, I got to say, you know, there's some people who are actors or actresses and think if they're down in the lobby, they may get discovered and then hang out in the bar. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 just not what you do. Yeah, it's, it's really an indication of I'm not in the business. Got it. Now, did Adam make it out okay? <laughs> yeah, he did. And, you know, I think we sort of snuck him out the back door because he, he realized it wasn't safe to go through the lobby, his <laughs> exit. But, um, but, and so, you know, look, it was funny. This is my show, and I, I, I'm not insulting my show. Of course. Um, but, I'm, but I'm just trying to say that that the – the people who have credentials, when they're going to go grab a drink at the bar, they tend to go to a bar at one of the other hotels and not downstairs at the Lowe's. And there's plenty, and there's plenty of bars and restaurants around the Lowe's. That there's oh, so yeah. much business being done, if not at the Lowe's, around the Lowe's. Uh, you can't get a seat in some of the other hotel lobbies. Yeah, no, no question. Now, can you explain what the IFTA is? Sure. The Independent Film and Television Alliance. That's Mm -hmm. the parent organization of the American film market. We're a a trade association. And for those who don't know what a trade association is, (coughs) trade groups are brought together by by industries uh, to perform services that are best done collectively for that industry. Whether National Restaurant Association, American Medical Association, Motion Picture Association. Um, Usually those are things like public policy, advocacy, lobbying. Uh, research, uh, programs that that all the participants in an industry can benefit from without giving um, specific benefit to one over another. So competitors get together. There are like 4,000 trade groups in this country alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're viewed by the IRS as, as nonprofits. Uh, it's a dues-based uh, um, um, system. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the film industry, I mean, you have the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters. Mm-hmm. You have the Motion Picture Association, MPA, who only has seven members, the seven studios. The Independent Film and Television Alliance, we have about 130 members. Um, we represent them from a distribution standpoint, from an export standpoint. We're an international trade group, not domestic. We have members in about 21 or 22 countries. And the common bond is... They are all exporting film and television outside their home country. And so we provide programs and services and representation around the revenue flow. For the most part, we don't look after their needs on the production side because production is very local. Uh, A member in Hong Kong who has an issue with production is going to have a very different issue than a member that might be in Australia or a member in the UK or the US. 
but their export and distribution issues uh, are very, very similar. And so, in fact, we have more members in Hong Kong than we do in New York. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, uh, if you look at our website, I'm going to a lot of the details. It's ifta-online.org. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see, you know, it touches on a lot of what we do. But the number one thing we do is advocacy, lobbying, um, the voice of the independents. There are many, many areas where laws are being around the world where laws are being proposed that could benefit the studios and hurt the independents. Um, and a lot of times we work hand in hand with the MPA. There's somebody in our office probably on the phone every day with the MPA mm -hmm. because various issues of, of protecting intellectual property were both on the same side. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other issues were on the same sides and, and we'll put together a united front. But then sometimes we are off the opposite sides of the table on, on, on some issues. And so I'll give you a simple example. Mm -hmm. if, if in a country they were going to pass a, a tax, a two-cent tax on the box office um, uh, that was going to go into a fund that was going to help local production or local distribution, it's possible that the MPA might be there saying, well, this is just going to be, uh, uh, it's going to hurt box office revenue, it's going to decrease our revenue, we don't think it's right, blah, 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 and a competitive. We would be in there on the other side of the table with the local distributors saying this is good, because independents are dependent on strong local business infrastructures and in film mm -hmm. uh, to have customers. Uh, there's a, a big, uh, big move for the last five years in the, in the EU to create a single digital market, meaning that if you license your film in any country for in, digitally in, in, in any country, it must simultaneously be available in all countries. Oh, wow. Well, this destroys territory licensing. Right. Um, uh, but it's perfect if you're a studio or Amazon or Netflix, no problem. You just put it out all at once. Right. But if you're licensing by territory and suddenly your little license in Denmark, that person has the right to show the film in Italy and Sweden and, and everywhere else, um, you've destroyed that value. We've spent five years um, uh, constantly in the EU building coalitions to fight that that legislation. So again, you know, I'm not the expert on this and I'm not the one that's sitting in the EU, but, but, but there are many, many areas where the business model of the independents is so different than the business model of the majors that the independents need that representation to assure that they stay alive. That's, that's a fascinating. I had no idea about the IFTA and what they did. So thank you. <laughs> for, sure. help, for, uh, for helping us out uh, as we as we continue to grow as an industry. Um, now, uh, you guys do a lot of educational and panels at the AFM. Are there any uh, conferences or panels that you are personally excited about? Well, I'm always I'll always have a lot of fun at the pitch conference. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the pitch conference it's a little different than most pitch conferences. Most pitch conferences, you're hoping someone might want to be involved with a film where they're giving you uh, um, advice on how to change the film up a little bit to make it more marketable. Our pitch conference doesn't critique the content. It critiques the quality of the pitch. Mm -hmm. It's all about the sales process. And we have about 25 filmmakers that come up on stage. We have a panel of three experts. They do a, a two-minute pitch, and then the pitch is critiqued. And, and the audience never leaves. Everybody is taking notes, not on the project, but learning how to pitch. Because mm -hmm. one of the problems that we see in our industry is that, that selling the sales process, the value of the salesperson is horribly undervalued. 
Um, sales is, is, is one of, if not the top paying profession in the world, uh, much more than doctors and lawyers. Um, but we as consumers actually don't come in contact with salespeople. We think we do, but we don't. Yes, if it's a house or a car, that's it. But I'm not talking about someone behind the cosmetics counter at Macy's. But if you sit and look around anywhere, who sold the asphalt in that street? Who sold the metal in that building? Most salespeople are in a B2B business. And it's a very, it's a very highly skilled area. And producers don't understand that they're in the business of B2B selling. Um, um, and, and so we try and help them understand, creative producers, what the sales process is about. I'll give you the best example we'll see at the FM, and we'll see it over and over. Even people listening to this are going to do what I'm about to say don't do, mm-hmm. which is they will walk in, they'll meet someone, they'll say hello, they might ask their name if they get that far, and then they'll start to tell them about their pitch. Mm-hmm. Have you ever walked on a car dealer's lot? The car <laughs> dealer walks up to you and says, hi, my name's Frank. I've got the perfect car for you. It's a red four-door. It gets great gas. And the, the blah, 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 blah. Tells you all about the car. Right. No. The salesman first qualifies the prospect. When are you buying? What are you looking for? What's your economics? What's your budget? And then tailors his pitch to meet the needs of the prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, over and over, I will, I will walk by offices uh, at the FM, an intern will be out there, you know, person taking messages, scanning the schedule, how's it going for your company, I'll ask for a second, they'll say, yeah, I've just heard three pitches today. I'm an intern and they keep pitching me. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but it great. happens over and over because there's, there's this feeling, it, social media has created a little bit of this, there's a feeling of if I just put it out everywhere, like pixie dust, Somewhere someone will mention it, and magically I'm going to get that 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 phone call. It's faith-based pitching, <laughs> um, and and that's that's not what works. The first thing the salesman producer does, not the creative producer, but the salesman producer is does is understands what the buyer wants. You know, we talked about the sales companies. Let me let me just go off topic for a second. We talked about the sales companies at the AFM. Um, and they're they're licensing to buyers from all over the world. These are the best pitchers in the world, bar none. And I'm not exaggerating. Think if you're a salesperson for a film company, uh, the acquisitions department has put together three projects and they said, here they are. There's a romantic comedy, there's an action adventure, and there's a real tough drama, American drama. And they're all in pre-production. Your job is to go sell them at the AFM. That's your job. Every 15 minutes, you're meeting with buyers from around the world, don't always speak English well, they have different needs and different things, and every 15 minutes you're pitching, and you're actually selling and closing deals on films that you weren't involved in packaging, that you may or may not like, and doesn't matter. And this is your job, and you don't sell films, the films don't get made, and you don't have a job. These are the best pitchers in the world. And, and the skill is so undervalued by producers. They think it's like, like they're firstborn. I know how to dress it. I'm going to you know, hold his hand walking to school for the first day. I'm going to tell the teacher how to talk to my child. You know, they, they have to hold on. They won't, they won't put it in the hands of someone else. You know, and my advice, I tell a producer, find a sales producer, your creative producer, mm-hmm. and then don't go to the meetings. And I'll, they'll look at me in horror. Like, <laughs> what do you mean I don't go to the meeting? You ever sold a house or a condo, the first thing that salesperson says, I'm showing the house today. Get out. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yep. Um, um, 
you're just going to mess it up because all you're going to do as a producer who loves the film is focus on how much you love the film, not on how to connect, literally connect with that buyer. You know, you're selling cars. And I got to admit, I sold cars for two years when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody walks on the lot. You know, I want to know all about them. I want to know everything about them so that I can tailor the car. I can tailor the pitch rather to meet what they need. The same thing. The buyer walks in. What do you need? I need I need action adventures with cast. Well, great. A film that you had that might not have had a lot of action. It just became a lot more action. And that cast you're looking for, I'm going to focus on the one name that happens to be in it, even though it might be a small role. And I'm just, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. giving a hypothetical. Sure, sure. They know how to pitch. And and this is, sorry, what got me off on this tangent. I don't even remember now. But but it's just so, so important. And a salesman producer knows this. Right. No, you were talking about the pitch fest at, yes. uh, at AFM. That's and, where and so, and, so and so it's trying to help. My goal in this in this in this pitch conference is not to make the room full of great pitchers. There's 600 people in the audience. They won't all be great pitchers. My goal is for most of them to open their eyes and saying, "I shouldn't be doing this." Right. They're not the cinematographer. Right. They're not the, the set designer. They don't need to be the pitcher. It's for them to realize I'm outside my comfort zone, and the project is at risk. If I'm the one that's going to stay in the deep end, I need to find an expert to connect with. And that's one of the advantages of being at the AFM. There are going to be 15 to 1,700 producers among the 7,000 who are there. 15, 1,700 producers from about 30 countries. Um, it's an opportunity to find those producers that can pitch and can sell. It's very similar to when you're making a movie. You you hire a cinematographer, you hire a production designer, you hire a writer because they're outside of your comfort zone. And and I think everyone forgets the the marketing aspect of things and the sales aspect of things, and they think they can do it all themselves for some I reason. Have, I have producers that every year, two or three producers will come and take an office at the AFM and say, I don't need a sales agent. I'm sell- saving the 5 to 20% fee, and I know my film better than they do, and I'm going to sell it myself. Mm-hmm. And invariably, they buy ads. They do all these things. The door sits open. No one comes in, um, and and they have a horrible experience. And they write to me and tell me I don't know how to run a film market. And I have to remind them about the conversation we had that I said don't do it. <laughs> um, and and it's the same reason we don't see a sign that says for sale by owner on a house. You know, as much as as much as we think all they're doing is opening the door. And then standing around watching TV while people walking out of the house. And then I'm paying 5% of them just to stand around on a Sunday. Well, yeah, because there's more to it that you don't see. And, you know, selling a film internationally, uh, most buyers won't buy from a producer. Mm-hmm. First, uh, um, um, and I guess most important is, is they're not sure that the producer can actually affect a full international delivery. Right. You know, it's more than it's more than just textless titles and filled M and E tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff: marketing materials, chain of title, all these things. They all have to happen at the same time globally. Mm-hmm. Globally, um, boy, you know, you buy a film and you find out it got released in a different country three months earlier, and now it's being pirated in your country. Um, you're screwed. So unless they can steal it, um, you know, at a real, you know, a low, real low offer. Mm-hmm. When 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 buyers see something uh, for sale by a producer, they don't know who it is, they don't know what it is, they've never done business with them before, it's a one-off, they just stay away, they don't even take the meetings. Right. They, it's more, they, and I've heard that before, that they will not, 
it takes years before they can build relationships of going to the FM every year. And they're like, oh, he's he's back. Oh, she's back. Okay. And then slowly but surely you start building those relationships to the point where like you, you have that connection. But generally speaking, they don't. And that's because in pre-sales, the seller, the pitcher is saying, you get through the whole pitch, there's one underlying comment, which is the film is going to be profitable for you. Notice I didn't say the film is going to be good. Mm-hmm. The film is going to be profitable. And and that ultimately is the promise that every pitcher is made. When you're a buyer saying, I'm in love with the film, they're not in love with the story. They're in love with the profit potential of the film. And And so... The pitchers are pitching the profitability of the film because that's what the B2B pitch is. It's not about what you are going to experience, the joy, the crying, the laughter. <laughs> they are pitching profitability. That's And that means the trailer and the artwork and everything is based on pitching profitability. That's a totally different marketing campaign than you go to a consumer where you're pitching the experience. And and the B that's why the B two B sales is very different, and that's why when you get to the uh, when you get to the producer trying to do their own pitch, they're really pitching and selling the consumer experience. They're not pitching the profitability that the buyer might have. The, I mean, uh, Jonathan, the, this interview has been <clears throat> eye opening and amazing, uh, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time out to to drop amazing knowledge bombs on our, uh, on the tribe. Uh, I have a couple questions. I ask all my, uh, my guests, sure. if you have, a, if you have some time. Sure. Um, what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to break into the business today? Uh, well, can you define filmmaker? Because Director, that, that, producer, uh, someone who actually wants to produce a film. So let's say producer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, producer is better than writer, um, mm-hmm. uh, or director. Sorry. Um, um, first of all, there's three kinds of producers. There's a creative producer who really works with writers and and develops stories and understands the texture of the script. There's a salesman producer we talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Knows, you know, walks the walk, talks the talk, knows mm-hmm. how to sell anything. Then there's the line producer who takes the great script and the dough that the sales producers raised and knows how to work with uh, with uh, with the unions and the mm-hmm. location scouts and how to get it done and time. So you know, really working backwards in that group. Line producers just need experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to just get on sets, start at the bottom, work their way up. Um, you know, sales producers, they don't need any advice from me. They're <laughs> better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. They, they know how to make the connections. They know how to work a room. They're, they know who the players are. My advice for the for – the only advice I really have is for the creative producer, find a sales producer. Mm-hmm. Find a sales producer. If you're the creative producer and you believe that you can really – Work well and develop a develop film that's going to resonate with an audience. Then find the sales producer who has faith in working with you as you develop it and work as a team. Most producers are producing teams. And sometimes they do both. Each one, one develops the other pitches. Sometimes one of them has a better idea of how to work the pitch than the other. But, but I would say find, find teams. One of the problems that creative producers have, it's similar to writers. First of all, a lot of creative producers, let's face it, are writers. Mm-hmm. They became a producer so they could sell their script. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you compare it to music, if you're a drummer and you say, I want to be in a band. Well, I, I, I need someone to play bass. I need to, where, where do I find these people? I'm just sitting at home in my garage with my drums. You get out there. You start meeting people. You go to clubs. You do gigs. You see gigs, and you start to find people that you can start to create relationships with. Writers are terrible at this. They're used to being <laughs> sitting. 
alone, you know, a drummer needs a band. They need everybody else. You just can't put a headset on, listen to other people's music, play along with it. You need other people. So you're, you're really into that collaborative process. Writers are used to sitting alone with the door shut and their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, and they really struggle at the process of, of networking, connecting. So all I can really say is when you're not writing, you better be building relationships. Um, and it isn't always with, let me tell you about the film that I've got. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's building relationships, building trust, finding the producer who can, who can sell. And uh, can you tell me the book that had the biggest impact on your life or career? Well, you know, I don't read enough, but um, it was a book in political science in college called The Irony of Democracy. Okay. And the theory or the theme of that book was that in all democracies, you have political institutions, you have hierarchies, um, whether they're, they're government institutions, non-government organizations and everything that ultimately have people at the top who are elites. Mm-hmm. And the theory of this book was elites have more in common with other elites, even of opposing views than they do with the people who they represent. And that the irony of the democracy is that it's those elites that work in concert with others, not always to the benefit of those they represent. Um, And so it's a long time ago, and I haven't thought about it in many years. But But if you ask a book that, that, that stuck with me, that's it. It's probably long, long out of print. It's a college textbook. Great, great, uh, great book. It sounds like a great book. Um, and then what lesson took you the longest to learn, whether in your industry or in life? Um, um, every day I realized I know less. <laughs> when I, you know, when I got out of school, I knew everything. Today I know less, and tomorrow I'm going to discover I know even less. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to, to, to the tribe and myself. So, And, and it's, again, been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Happy to do it and really enjoyed the discussion. Well, I know a lot more about AFM than I did before this interview, for without question. And I want to thank Jonathan again for being on the show and, and being so candid about the entire process of AFM and how to really sell a movie and what what buyers are looking for. And I feel, again, so many times filmmakers forget that this is a business. As uh, my friend Suzanne Lyons says, the word there's show and there's business. And the word business has twice as many letters as the word show for a reason. You know, it is so important to understand how to make a movie, but is as equally important on how to sell a movie and actually make money and to maintain a sustainable career as a filmmaker and as a film producer or writer or director. Now, I know of a few uh, tribe members who are going to be at AFM. I'm going to be there on November 1st. I'm going to be walking around. If you guys are going to be there, I'd love to catch a drink, get together. I'll be there most of the day uh, flying around and, and going to events and things like that. So please reach out to me and let me know if you guys are going to be there. We can meet in the lobby. We can hang out. We could do some stuff. It'll be a lot of fun. And if you guys are interested in going, it is on November 1st through the 8th in Santa Monica. You can still get passes. You can still get tickets to go. And definitely, if you are in the Los Angeles area or can get here and you want to learn how to sell your movie and see how movies are really sold, I highly suggest you guys attend. 
because it's definitely a amazing educational experience for all filmmakers. Whether you're going to self-distribute or not self-distribute, you should know how others are making money selling their movies. Now, I'll put links to everything we spoke about in the episode at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 192 in the show notes. And if you guys haven't already, please head over to our YouTube channel. It is blowing up. We are getting close to 10,000 subscribers, which I know in the grand scope of YouTube is not that big, but for us, that's pretty big. And I'm really excited. Uh, and it's growing very fast, uh, especially with our new shows that we have going on, the director series and uh, the Indie Film Hustle Film School, as well as replays of the podcast. And I've got some big stuff coming up in January. And actually, since I'm going to take this moment to see if you guys can help, I've got a show idea that I want to do for the channel, and it's called Ask Alex. I've done a few of those on the podcast, but I'm actually going to create a YouTube show where I'm going to answer one question from the tribe every day for 30 days in January. So we're going to I'm going to release them every day in January and I need questions. I need questions from you guys. So what I want to do is get your questions, your name will be read out on the show and I'll also put up your your Twitter handle as well so you can get a little bit of press and a little bit of push on your stuff as well. And I want questions about everything in the film industry what your you your what your questions are about what's going on in the business should i go to film school should i not go to film school how should i make this how should i do that anything you want i will be an open book and try to help you as much as humanly possible so it's an experiment guys i'm going to do this for 30 days and if it's a if it's a big experiment and it and works well and people really seem to like it it might be something i'll do a more continuous uh, show on uh, but that's the plan and I am hopefully going to be going as well to Sundance this year again and going to be doing a special series of interviews like we did last year, maybe a little bit different, a little bit bigger. Uh, we're going to see what we can do. Uh, I'm going to create a lot more content coming in from uh, Sundance as well this year. So I'm hoping, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it all out, but I'm hoping I'll be able to do that as well. So for your questions, please email ifhsubmissions at gmail.com. That's ifhsubmissions at gmail.com. Now, I will be selecting 30 questions for the show, so hopefully your question will get in. And if it doesn't get in, don't worry. I'm going to do my best to answer those questions in later episodes of the podcast, maybe later episodes of uh, the Ask Alex show on YouTube. We'll see. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. And as always, keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, 
Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 